0: While today is Easter Sunday, our our goal at this church is really to celebrate what Jesus has done for us every single Sunday, and so today we're gonna be continuing our study through the book of Genesis, and as always, Jesus and his incredible love for us is gonna be central to everything we're gonna be looking at today. Uh, Last week, we saw the infamous fall of man, the first sin in history as Adam and Eve rebelled against God by intentionally disobeying him, and we talked about how the entire universe fell because of that sin as evil and entropy and death came bursting into our reality, And we ended with Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden by God in an act of mercy. It was an act of mercy because had they stayed in the garden, they would have eaten from the tree of life and been able to live forever in their human bodies which were broken and decaying through sin. And that would be no kind of life at all. God had a better plan that man would eventually die and that his spirit would be released to be with the Lord where he would receive a new body, a resurrected body, free from sin and its effects because Jesus would in the future die in the place of man to take the punishment and judgment that man's sins were destined for. And whether we know it or not, we're all longing to be freed from our brokenness. We all are. We're all longing for things to be made right in the world and we all understand that things are not right with the world but not only that, that they're not right with other people within ourselves and in the way we relate to one another. We all feel that. The Bible says that's because God has put eternity in the hearts of men. We all crave that new resurrected body and being with the Lord in eternity where things are made right. And so Adam and Eve had hope. As bad as things were, last week we read in Genesis 3.15 that God gave them a prophecy promising a Savior would come in the form of a child who would be born to a woman. This week we're going to see how quickly sin spirals out of control, specifically anger, and we're going to encounter the first recorded murder, and we're going to be reminded, as always, just how much we need Jesus. Timeline-wise, we don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before they sinned. We know that God gave Adam the task of naming all the creatures and animals on earth before he gave Eve to Adam, so that could have taken a while. And then we know that Adam and Eve were together in the garden for a while before they sinned. How long was that? We don't know, but I tend to think probably not very long. The main events of Genesis 4 that we're going to read today, Cain and Abel, would seem to take place when Adam is still pretty young. He's in about his 120s at this time, uh, which is young when you're going to live to over 700, as Adam did. So let's jump in at verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. That's just biblical vocabulary for had sex with. It's not like he knew who she was. That's what it means and Eve's gonna get pregnant for the first time. And it says, she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. The literal translation of what Eve said, I put on your outlines, it's, I have acquired a man, even the Lord, even the Lord. That's what Eve actually says. In other words, Eve believed that that first child, Cain, was going to be the Lord. She believed it was going to be the promised Savior, the promised Messiah of Genesis 3.15, She thought that this was gonna be the seed of the woman who would solve the problem of sin and and make everything right in the world again and get them back into the garden. And you think your parents had high expectations of you, right? (laughs) Verse two, it says, Then she bore again, this time his brother, Abel, now it's unclear whether Abel was the next child that Eve bore, there could have potentially been many children born between Cain and Abel, the Bible doesn't tell us. Genesis four is about an event that takes place between the two brothers Cain and Abel, but the Bible doesn't say that they were necessarily born consecutively. Several scholars believe there were many children between them in part because the name Abel means breath, emptiness, or vanity pointlessness, basically, which at a minimum would seem to indicate that by the time she gave birth to Abel, Eve was kind of over the whole kid's thing. She didn't really have a whole lot of hope. She gave birth to this kid, and she didn't name him second try or here we go again. She named him pointlessness, vanity, breath, waste of everything. That's basically what she named him. So she's kind of over it at this point, and I think that's because she had figured out what every parent Who has a child older than one knows that children are born with a sin nature. Nobody who has a kid who's older than one believes the notion that we're born good. You don't believe that if you're a parent. Your kid will lie and no one will have to teach them how to do it. Your kid will try and steal. Nobody will show them how. Your kid will use physical force to try and overpower another weaker child. They'll be selfish and refuse to share. They'll scream just to be difficult And you know that nobody taught them how to do that. They just know because they're adorable little sinners. If you're a parent who believes that kids are born good, I really mean this. If you're a parent who believes that kids are born good, then I really want some of whatever meds you're on, okay? Because we know that this is not true based on basic observation. Then we read, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So Abel becomes a shepherd, Cain being the firstborn, followed in his father Adam's footsteps and became a farmer. Verse 3, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of, and then I want you to underline their fat, their fat. And I'll explain in a second why that's important. So there comes a time when both Cain and Abel are gonna bring an offering to the Lord. Cain brings some fruits and veggies from his farm. Abel brings a lamb from his flock. And then we read this. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And so we need to have a serious conversation about the whole vegan-vegetarian thing. I'm, just, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That's not where this is going at all, okay? The Lord accepts Abel's offering but rejects Cain's offering. So firstly, how did they know whether their offering had been accepted or rejected? The most likely explanation is that just as occurred in several other places in the Old Testament, it's likely that God caused fire to come down from the sky and completely consume, completely burn up the offering he accepted. And then for the person whose offering was not accepted, I guess they just stood there awkwardly waiting for fire that never came from heaven, but it tended to make it pretty clear whether or not your offering had been accepted. So why did the Lord accept Abel's offering, but not Cain's? Well, a few things paint a picture for us. We're gonna have to do a little bit of detective work. In verse four, I had you underline the phrase, they're fat, and we're specifically told that Abel offered the fat of the firstborn of his flock as well as the main body of this animal. Now that's an odd detail to include in the text which leads me to believe it's there for a reason because everything in the Bible is there for a reason. In this instance, it points us toward Leviticus 3.16. I put it on your outline. Leviticus 3.16 is part of the law of God, which he would give to the Israelites hundreds of years later. It's a law in regards to how a specific type of offering is to be presented to the Lord, and this is what it says. It says, and the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma, and then I want you to underline all the fat is the Lord's, all the fat is the Lord's. A few weeks ago, we talked about the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, the day of rest, and we talked about how the Sabbath wasn't invented at the time of the Ten Commandments. It was created by God and given to Adam all the way back in these first couple of chapters of Genesis. Hundreds of years later, the Sabbath was codified. It was officially recorded in the law of God in the Ten Commandments. And it would seem that the same thing happened with certain sacrifices and offerings. In other words, God had given instructions to Adam about how certain offerings and sacrifices were to be made. And those instructions were passed down from Adam to his children, and then hundreds of years later, they were codified in the law of God in Leviticus. And that would seem to be why we have the fat of the animal mentioned specifically here in Genesis 4, and then codified in Leviticus 3.16. If you're saying, Jeff, my head is spinning, and even though it's nodding, I don't really understand what's going on. The big point is this. All signs point to the fact that God had given instructions on how sacrifices were to be made to him. Abel followed those instructions, and Cain did not. And that's why Abel's offering was accepted, but Cain's was rejected. So write this down, and then we'll keep unpacking it. Abel gave the offering God had ordained, while Cain gave the offering he deemed appropriate. So Cain said, what did God tell us to do? I'm going to do that. Cain said, "Mm, I'm not really going to do that. I'm going to make the call myself. I think this will do just fine. In Hebrews 11, which is the famous Hall of Faith chapter of the Bible, it's a chapter of the Bible that lists men and women of the Bible who were great examples of faith, it says this, also on your outlines, by faith, underline the word faith, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. So all I want us to focus in on that really is the part that it was by faith that Abel's sacrifice to God was accepted and pleasing to God. So in what way did Abel's sacrifice require faith? Well, in offering what was most likely a lamb, as God had prescribed, Abel was teaching himself and those around him by his actions that without the shedding of innocent blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. There can be no forgiveness of sin. We've talked about this before. Rejecting and rebelling against God, your creator, your maker, the God of the universe, the the definition and embodiment of love, godliness, goodness, innocence, and righteousness, rejecting and rebelling against God in any way at all is the most serious crime in the universe. That's what makes it sin. And, And what's the most appropriate punishment for the most serious crime? In the universe, we know that it's eternal death, separation from God forever, eternity in darkness, spiritual, emotional, physical, mental darkness. That's what's appropriate. That's what's just. That is what is fair. And yet, if you're here today celebrating Easter, you know the incredible truth that God would send Jesus, his only begotten son, and Jesus would come willingly to the earth and die in your place and mine take all that punishment that we deserve, that eternity in darkness in hell, Jesus would take that punishment and shed his innocent blood so that you and I could be forgiven and made right with God. And the Lord knew all along that man would sin and that Jesus would come to the earth and die in man's place. And so what God wanted to do is he wanted to accomplish three things in between the time when Adam and Eve sinned and the time when Jesus would die on the cross to make payment for people's sins. Firstly, he wanted to help us understand that sin leads to death and destruction in every area of life, in every area of life. And so as these animals would need to be killed to make these sacrifices, they would be this very visceral, physical, literal example that sin leads to death. This is what sin does. God was taking the spiritual effects of sin, which we can't see, and bringing them into the physical realm and saying this is what's going on inside your spirit on a spiritual level. It's this bloody. They would say that in Jerusalem, around the time of Jesus During the Passover, when every family would need to sacrifice a lamb, they would say that literally there would be a river of blood running from the temple all day, every day, for that entire week. Just solid blood, not mixed with the water, just solid blood. It would have been very, very disturbing. The second thing is God wanted people to understand the truth that they had all sinned and did not have the ability to solve the problem of sin themselves. You see, if you were honest with yourself, you would say, okay, I've sinned. I need to make a sacrifice to God to atone for that. You make the sacrifice. You're like, oh, this is good. I guess my sins are forgiven. You turn around stub your toes. Son of a... Oh, you got to go back. You just sinned again. And so anyone who was honest with themselves would realize through the system of sacrifices that there's not enough I can do. It's just not possible. I sin all the time. And that was something God wanted people to become aware of. Because you have to be aware of a problem before you can be willing to receive the solution to that problem. And then thirdly, God wanted people to learn the truth that he had a plan to send a savior, his son Jesus, to take the punishment in their place, that Jesus would be the Lamb of God. And so he was putting into their mind as they sacrificed these animals for their sins, he was teaching them sin is bloody, sin is destructive, sin brings death, there has to be the shedding of blood to make things right, but no amount of blood from animals is ever gonna make you right. You need an ultimate solution. And all of that pointed toward Jesus. And men like Abel would have to kill an innocent little lamb by slitting its throat and it would have been messy. It would have been bloody. It would have been ugly. It would have been unpleasant. It, it would have been awful. And that was the point, to help people, people understand this is what sin does. It takes good things and it destroys them. Sin creates a, a bloody mess. Sin kills And this cycle would have become so wearisome. I sin, I have to kill something. I sin, there's more blood and more death. I sin, and on and on and on the cycle goes. I can't stop sinning, and I can't stop the cycle of death. We needed a a permanent solution. We needed a savior. And none of those sacrifices actually solved the problem of sin. All they did was point ahead to Jesus and make people aware that they needed A savior, that was the whole point. A savior who would die once and for all, for all sins, for all time. And in offering the sacrifice the way God had instructed it to be made, Abel was demonstrating his faith that if he obeyed God and did what God said, the end result would be that somehow he would be made right with God. He didn't know how God would do it, but he had faith, if I do what God says, God will make a way for me to be right with him. In other words, Abel showed faith because he wouldn't have obeyed the Lord if he didn't believe that it would work. In Romans 10, we know this. It says famously, faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So it says in Hebrews 11 that by faith Abel offered the sacrifice. In Romans 10, it says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So God had spoken through Adam or to these boys about what an acceptable sacrifice would be. Abel obeyed the Lord and trusted what God said. And so he dealt with the blood and the violence and the mess and the death and the horror of that sacrifice. Cain, on the other hand, said, that sounds messy. I've got a much better idea. I'll bring the best of my garden instead. I'll make that my sacrifice. And write this down. In deciding what was pleasing to God, Cain was making himself God. So Cain didn't ask God what God wanted. Cain just said, "Mm, I'll decide what's appropriate for my sin. And in doing that, Cain was literally making himself God. I'll decide what an appropriate offering is. And people do this all the time, believers and non-believers. Non-believers do this when they say, well, here's what seems right to me. And it's not really based on anything other than their own thoughts in that moment you literally make yourself God because you say I believe that I can define what a good person is and whatever God wants I think I get to define that and in doing that you've made yourself God as though when your life is over you're going to stand before yourself and ask yourself the question did you live a good life to which you'll obviously respond of course I did self okay self come on into heaven Believers do this, though, when we know what the Bible says, but then instead we choose to say, well, I just feel that, fill in the blank, or, well, I just believe that. I know the Bible says this, but I think this is an acceptable act of obedience instead. I think this is going far enough. I know what the Bible says. And in doing that, we've now put ourselves above God. And what we've literally done is we've said, I know what the Word of God says, but I'm here to edit the word of God with a new revised version. And in doing that, we're putting ourselves above God. That's what Cain was doing by bringing something other than what God asked. He was making himself God, and we should be careful not to make the same mistake. Abel's action showed that he understood God is the one who judges sin, and therefore God is the one who gets to determine what the sacrifice needs to look like. Cain's action showed he didn't believe his sin was a serious issue, and so he could just offer whatever he felt was appropriate. And here in Genesis four, Abel brings a lamb to die in the place of one man, himself. When we get to the book of Exodus during the Passover, when all the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, do you remember the story? They're told to sacrifice a lamb for their family. They're told to mark the doorposts of their homes with the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross. When we get to Leviticus, we see a lamb that's being offered for the sins of the whole nation of Israel, the lamb that was sacrificed on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, once a year. And then finally, in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him, he famously cries out, what? He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the world. Beginning here in Genesis 4, there's this progression from a lamb for one man all the way to the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. It's all pointing and leading to Jesus and the sacrifice he would make shedding his own blood that would cover the sins of you and I. Well, how does Cain react to God rejecting his offering? We read this, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. He becomes despondent. So Cain's response is anger, and his anger almost immediately leads to a depression. This is the first mention of depression in the Bible, and and as we've shared many times, there's an important hermeneutical principle. Don't get thrown off by the big word. Hermeneutics is just how we study the Bible, how we understand what the Bible is saying. It's a principle called the principle of first mention, and it's very simple. If you want to gain some profound insights on any subject, get into the Word of God and look up the first time that subject comes up, and there'll usually be some foundational important truths that you can glean from that. So this is the first mention of depression in the Bible. Keep that in mind. We're going to talk about it some more in just a minute. Verse 6, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? God knows why Cain is depressed, but he wants Cain to ask himself that question. He wants Cain to examine himself and ask the question, why am I depressed? What's going on? What's the cause of my depression? God is trying to prompt Cain to do some self-examination. The Lord continues speaking to Cain and says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? The literal translation is, if you do well, will you not be lifted up? In other words, Cain, if you change your attitude and correct your behavior, your offering will be accepted too. I'm not against you. I'm just calling you to do what's right. So do what's right, Cain, and your depression will lift. Your joy will return. Now tune into this because God keeps speaking to Cain. He says, and if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. And the phrasing in the original language is a dangerous beast like a lion waiting just outside one's door to pounce and attack. And just in case it isn't scary enough, God says in Cain, that lion wants you specifically. That's the way God describes sin, and he tells Cain, but you're meant to rule over that sin, that beast crouching outside your door. You should bring your emotions under control, Cain, so that you can rule over sin rather than letting your emotions run wild, which will empower sin to rule over you. 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This is huge, listen up here. God is telling Cain, you're at a crossroads, Cain. You messed up. You disobeyed me, and that's left you feeling angry and depressed, and now, Cain, you're at the point of decision. Is your anger and your depression going to lead you to be honest with yourself? Is it gonna make you evaluate yourself and take responsibility for your mistakes? Because if you will, if you'll learn from this and go back and do things the right way, the depression will lift and your joy will return. But if you refuse, to evaluate yourself honestly, if you refuse to take responsibility for your own actions and decisions, if you choose to stay in the place of anger and depression, know this, Cain, you have an enemy who's waiting to destroy you right outside your door and he will use that anger and that depression to devour you, to destroy you. What you should do, Cain, is take responsibility for your own actions, and rule over your anger. So what's it gonna be, Cain? That's a whole sermon right there, right? Don't get your hopes up, it's not actually us. Just using it as a phrase. But we could just stop and just just meditate on what God is saying to Cain there because it's so powerful and important for each of us. And we're gonna have time to do that after this message. But write this down. God lays out two paths for Cain. He says, Cain, you can choose between honesty and change, or anger and victimhood. That's the choice. Honesty and change or anger and victimhood. So in other words, you can evaluate yourself. You can take responsibility for your decisions and actions. Then you can change course and do things the right way or don't take responsibility for your actions and decisions. Let your anger convince you that you're the victim and that everything bad that's happened to you is somebody else's fault. And many of you understand this already because you've lived through this. Some of you for the better, some of you for the worse. But many of you understand already that the decision Cain is facing has the potential to define years of his life, if not the rest of his life. This stuff is a big, big deal. And some of you can look back on your own lives with regret at the years, the years that you lost to choosing the path of victimhood, the years of anger and depression. And some of you can look back at times in your life that you didn't choose the path of victimhood. Times when you did take responsibility for your decisions and actions and you made a change. And I know that those of you who can look back at those decisions, look back and think, thank God. Thank God. It was hard. But thank God I'm not in that place of anger and depression. Because I chose the right path at that time. And I know that some of you are facing this decision right now. These are the two paths you're choosing between. Am I gonna take responsibility for my actions? Am I gonna honestly evaluate myself and change? Or am I gonna stay in the place of anger that leads to depression and choose to view myself as a victim and just camp out in that place? If you're in that place of making that decision right now, pay attention. And if you're not in that place, pay attention because you're gonna be in that place again soon. It comes around in all of our lives. And because uh, I can't seem to preach very long without offending somebody, and we're at least 20 minutes into this, it's about time. So I thought I'd, uh, I thought I'd talk a little bit about depression. And, and what I'm gonna ask is that you listen to what I'm actually saying, and that you listen to everything I'm gonna say. Don't tune in on one thing I say that you find offensive and then block out the rest. Uh, here in Genesis 4, The Bible is very clear that there is a type of depression that enters a person because that person refuses to accept God's invitation to walk in the light. They refuse to heed God's call to turn away from sin and turn toward him. And here's what I'm saying. That's not the cause of all depression. But the Bible is clear here in Genesis 4. It is the cause of at least some depression. A person hears God's word. They know in their spirits that they should do what God says, but they don't. And because they don't, it inevitably leads to negative things in their life because that's what happens when we sin. At which point they become angry and they become depressed. And here's my point. Based on what the Bible says, if you find yourself in a depression and you know that there's specific sin in your life, you know that you're disobeying the Lord in an area of your life, you need to deal with that sin before you deal with antidepressants. If you're bitter or unforgiving or angry toward another person, try forgiving them before you try to medicate the problem away. Science tells us that when a person becomes depressed, the levels of certain chemicals in their brain, like serotonin, lower, which is what causes us to feel down. And, and so I want you to understand that. that. That's what happens scientifically. It's not that the chemicals lower most of the time and then you feel depressed. It's that 99 or high 90s percent of the time there is a depression, something that causes a depression and the depression causes those chemicals in the brain to lower, to lower. And when, uh, when things like Prozac and mood-altering drugs were first coming out, they were very clear about, this is what the purpose is of antidepressants. It's to get you going enough to tackle the issue of what your depression is, the root cause of it. That was the whole goal. I'm stuck in bed, I can't get out, I'm depressed. Take antidepressants so that you can get out of bed and begin to search for the root cause of your depression so that you can actually tackle that and deal with it. In the Western world most people quickly began to say, well, I mean, why do I actually need to try and figure out the cause of my depression when I could just keep taking these pills, which solve the problems caused by my depression? Why, why go to all that trouble? I feel great now. And then last I heard, something like a third of all adults in North America are on some type of mood-altering drug. And I can guarantee you that the overwhelming majority of those adults are not actively seeking out the root cause of their depression. And we all, we all know this, it's pretty obvious. And the problem is that we can use antidepressants to get rid of a depression that might be being brought on by sin. We can use antidepressants to get rid of a depression that's being brought on because there's somebody we refuse to forgive. And so instead of taking a cue from the depression And asking the question of ourselves that God wanted Cain to ask, which is, why has your countenance fallen? Instead of asking that question, sometimes we'll just medicate the problem away so that we don't have to deal with it. We don't have to try and seek out the root cause. I'll just deal with the symptom rather than the cause. And what I'm saying is that we need to make sure that we're never doing that as believers. And I understand that antidepressants serve different purposes and different needs and different people and I understand that sometimes they're necessary just to get you out of bed to begin tackling the problem but what I'm saying is if you're a believer who's dealing with depression you should not be in the place where you are not seeking out the cause of your depression where you're just saying I don't really care what it is I'm going to use these pills to solve the problem because there's a good chance that the depression is the result of something that needs to be dealt with. It's a way that your mind and your body and your soul is trying to draw your attention to the fact that there is a problem. And the problem is not that the chemicals are lowering in your brain. The problem is that there is a cause for your depression. And again, I understand that's not always the case, but the Bible is clear that at least some of the time it is the case. And so we wanna make sure that as believers, we're not medicating away something that God is trying to draw our attention to. Like Cain, we have a choice, and and we can choose to do what God says in his word. You know, there's, there's a ton of depressed people in the Bible, and they write about it. And they write about the choices they made in some of those situations, to praise God even when they had a heavy heart. The choice to rejoice in the Lord, the choice to cry out to God even in times of sorrow. The choice to pray without ceasing, the choice to give thanks in every circumstance. You think that verse in the Bible about giving thanks in every circumstance is there to remind us to give thanks when everything's going well? It's it's not. It's there to remind us to give thanks when it's difficult and when it's hard. We can make the choice to do what the Bible says, which is think on things that are praiseworthy, which are holy, which are pure, which are good, which are virtuous. We can make the choice to think that way. Is it easy? No, it's not. It's nowhere close to easy because it's not natural. It's not natural at all. We gravitate the complete other way because we're fallen men and women. We gravitate towards sin and toward darkness. That's our default. That's where we go. But I'm saying the choice To seek the Lord, even when you're downcast and when you're depressed, that choice is still far easier than living your life thinking all the time, I'm mad at them, it's unfair, I'm angry, I've been wronged, I deserve better. That's a hard way to live your life. That's a very hard way to live your life. That's a dark place to be. The Lord says to you and I, if you make that choice, if you make the choice to not forgive, or to not repent, to not change, but instead choose to only view yourself as a victim, know this, sin is crouching at the door and it wants you, it wants you. And again, I I just wanna be crystal clear, I'm not saying we should never use meds, I'm not saying we should never use antidepressants, I'm saying if you're dealing with depression, you gotta ask yourself the question the Lord asked Cain, which is, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? You gotta tackle the question of why. And I understand that sometimes we need medication in order to do that. So write this down. When dealing with depression, we must ask ourselves the question, why has your countenance fallen? Why has your countenance fallen? And that's a journey that you gotta make on your own. Your doctor's not gonna tell you that. Your friends aren't necessarily gonna be able to tell you that you got to ask the Lord to show you and spend some time looking at yourself honestly. Tragically, Cain would make the decision to not take responsibility for his actions and decisions. He would choose to stay in the place of anger and depression and in doing so, he opened the door to that lion that was just outside and said, come on in, and sin devoured him. And here's how sin devoured Cain. Tune into this, this is good stuff. Unresolved anger will always find a target. Write that down. Unresolved anger will always, always, always find a target. And I need you to get that because this truth ruins people's lives. Even if the source of your anger is not around, doesn't matter. If you have unresolved anger, you're going to find a target. And if all that's around are innocent victims, then one of them will have to do. If we don't take ownership of our decisions and actions, we will find other people to blame them on, to lash out at. And Cain found his target in his brother Abel. In verse eight we read, now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. A lot of original manuscripts say basically that Cain said to Abel, let's go out into the field. So he lured him out into the field. Then we read, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's Abel, your brother? And he said, the audacity here is incredible. I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? And the inference of the scriptures is yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. Verse 10, and he said, God, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. In other words, I saw everything Cain. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. In other words, you're not gonna be able to even farm successfully anymore, Cain. You're gonna wander the earth aimlessly, like a fugitive. So why would God do this to Cain? Why would he do it? Because he's a loving father who's doing everything he can To get his kid to turn away from evil and destruction and turn toward that which is right. To walk in the light. And much of the time, kindness and grace doesn't change our stubborn heart. Doesn't change. God tried it with Cain. He told him nicely. He said, Cain, why don't you just go back, fix your attitude, come back, offer the sacrifice, and I'll accept it. Your joy will be back. Everything will be great. Cain didn't respond to that. Ended up murdering his brother. Most of the time we have to come face to face with the reality that doing things our way, rejecting God leads to pain and heartache. And God tells us that in the Bible all over the place but the truth is most of us don't believe him. You know what it takes for us to start believing God? Disobeying him and actually experiencing that heartache and pain so that we go, you know what? I think God's actually telling the truth. This is real. We don't generally listen the first time. We gotta burn our hands on the stove. Cain was unrepentant and so the Lord had to switch gears and start applying the pressure through difficult circumstances. And we we say this a lot here. God loves you and I so much. He's willing to let the bottom fall out of your life if that's what it takes to get you back to him. He's willing to let the whole bottom of your life fall out. Your whole life fall apart if that's how far he has to go to get you to the place where you understand you need him so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be truly healed, so that you can be made truly whole. Every option is on the table for God because he loves you. He's not gonna stop until he reaches you. So write this down. God does everything he can to lead Cain to repentance. He does everything he can to lead Cain to repentance. Most of the time in our lives when we're in sin and the pressure comes on and things begin falling apart and we say, God, what's going on? What we always forget is that God's always tried the kind, gentle approach, always. Usually in our lives for years. And it didn't work. And so now he's trying a different tactic. He's applying pressure. Verse 13, and Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. So sadly, Cain is still not taking responsibility. He's still not showing any type of repentance. Now he's just complaining that the consequences of his actions are unfair. He should be saying, Father, forgive me. I've I've wronged my brother and I've wronged you. I had no right to take his life. But for Cain, it's it's still all about him. In his mind, He was wronged by God. He was upstaged by his brother. And now he's being punished unfairly. Uh, When you allow sin to get a hold of your life through anger, causing you to become depressed and you won't repent, you'll just stay focused on yourself, constantly feeling like you're getting an unfair deal in life. And you'll go through life cursed because of your own choices. And do you notice that Cain doesn't say to God, your face shall be hidden from me. He says, I shall be hidden from your face. Translation, it's not fair. I'm mad and I'm not gonna be talking to you anymore, God. I'm gonna be hiding myself from you. And then we see the progression and then the paranoia begins to set in, right? Anyone who finds me will kill me. Anyone who finds me will kill me. I can't trust anyone. Everyone's out to get me. Everyone's out to take advantage of me. Everyone's out to wrong me. We've all known someone like this, right? Someone who took the path of Cain, maybe you did. And you know that all of their relationships are doomed from the start because they're so paranoid about being wronged because their belief is that their whole life they've been wronged and mistreated. And that's where Cain's at. It's just another product of unresolved anger. Write this down. Unresolved anger leads to paranoia which poisons all potentially meaningful relationships. Every possible meaningful relationship you can have is doomed from the start because you've got this paranoia that everyone's out to get you. Everyone's gonna kill me. Even in Cain's stubborn, unrepentant state, God is still kind to him and God still reassures him in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. So God says, listen, Cain, I'm gonna put this mark on you. Everyone's gonna know what it means. No one's gonna touch you because I'm gonna wreak hell on them if they do. So God is giving Cain literally the rest of his life to repent. That's what he's doing. He's saying, Cain, I'm not gonna send you out there just to be killed by someone. I'm gonna let you sit in the consequences of your sin because I want you to repent. God's goal isn't to punish Cain His goal is to change Cain's heart because God loves him. So what was the mark of Cain? Just so you know, nobody knows. Anyone who says they do is completely speculating. And I know you're thinking that's never stopped you before, Jeff, but I'm not even going to spend any time on that today, okay? So anger, revenge, bitterness, unforgiveness, these things hurt the one who does them. They hurt the one who does them. Well, uh, Abel was murdered, Jeff, I think. That counts as him getting hurt, too. But where did Abel go? Abel, Abel went to heaven. He went to heaven, right? And he goes down forever in the Bible, in Hebrews 11, as an example of faith. Not only that, he goes down as a type of Jesus. Abel was a shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd. According to Luke 11, Abel was the first prophet. We know that Jesus had a prophetic office to his ministry as well. Abel was a priest who offered an acceptable sacrifice. Jesus is the great high priest who offered the ultimate acceptable sacrifice of himself. Abel was hated and murdered by his brother. Jesus was hated and murdered by his brothers, the Jews. Abel's blood was shed. Jesus' blood was shed. The Lord said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the crown. Hebrews 12, 24 says that the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. In other words, Abel's blood cried out to God a message of condemnation and judgment. Cain is a murderer, but the blood of Jesus cries out something better. It cries out you're forgiven. Sins are paid for, they're washed away. There's no condemnation for anyone who receives Jesus. Verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. The word Nod just means wandering or exile. And so it could be a literal place or or it could just be a phrase of speech that he was living in the land of exile. Verse 17, and Cain knew his wife. Now wait a minute, Jeff. Where did Cain get his wife? Well, Adam and Eve had Cain. They had Abel likely in between, but definitely after they had many, many other children. That's what happens when you have no birth control and you've been going at it for over 100 years. That's kind of what happens. Now, some Bible scholars estimate that by this time, there may have already been hundreds of thousands of people on the earth just as the result of exponential population growth because if Adam's 120, I mean, things are moving at this point. You're multi-generations deep. So, simply put. Cain married one of his relatives, and our first response is, ew. And the, the, the reason we respond that way is because today, inbreeding uh, produces all kinds of genetic defects, right? Because we know today, based on genetics, genetics that the closer two relatives are, the more in common they're going to have in their genome, in their DNA coding, and the more in common they have the more birth defects are likely to take place. Now, the further back in history you go towards the Garden of Eden, the more pure the human genome becomes, the less corruption there is in human DNA, the less things like deformities and defects and diseases. So marrying a relative wasn't weird or taboo or dangerous in any way at that time. And so it's also likely that as each generation is born, people began marrying further and further apart. So instead of marrying your sibling, now you're marrying your cousin, now you're marrying your second cousin, etc., etc., etc. And yes, I'm aware that no matter How much I explain this, it's still gonna sound weird. I understand, I understand. Later on in history, God will forbid the marrying of close relatives because the genetics of the human race have become corrupted by the time the law of God is given, resulting in the dangers we know today take place when two close relatives have a child. Then we read, and she, Cain's wife, conceived and bore Enoch. This is not the famous Enoch of the Bible who will show up in the next chapter of Genesis. This is a different Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So Cain wanders off and builds a city. He doesn't dedicate it to the Lord. He dedicates it to his son. He's attempting to build his own empire in his family's image. And just take a note of some of the plunge into depravity that ensues. To Enoch was born Erad, 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 which means wild ass, means wild ass so all of our problems with rebellious culture go back to a wild ass named erad now you know and erad begot mehuyael which means blot out god and mehuyael begot methushael which means who are of god and so you put them together and you start getting blot out god and those who are of god and Methusel begot Lemech, which means powerful. And Lemech took for himself two wives. This is the first example of polygamy in the Bible. This guy Lemech, who says, There's just too much man here for one lady. We need to double up this party. So remember the principle of first mention again. There's somebody in here who's like, Please don't ever speak in that voice again, pastors. <laughs> <laughs> so remember the principle of, of first mention again. Now, we keep reading about these wives, and it says, the name of one was Ada, meaning ornament. And the name of the other was Zillah, meaning shadow, meaning shadow. And so the idea here is that one of them is the ornament, the beautiful thing to look at. The other is a shadow of what the other one is. So there's one, and he's like you are the business and then there's the other wife who maybe he got drunk and like slept with one night and now he's like stuck with her sort of thing and he's like, yeah, you're just a shadow of what she is. But the picture that the Bible is painting here is that he doesn't look at them the same way at all. Now understand this, what God says about money is also true about relationships and it's on your outlines. Jesus himself said no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You see, we think, well, I'll have an affair for fun, but I'll, I'll keep loving my spouse. I'll stay committed there. Or I'll, I'll just scratch that sexual itch that I have with some internet porn. Or, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll confide in that other person, but I'll still love my spouse. But what always happens is that as your affection is directed somewhere else, your affection will also inevitably decrease for your spouse. That's just the way it happens. You'll start hating them and they'll become increasingly unattractive to you. Why? Because Jesus Christ said no one can serve two masters. No one can do it. That's just the way it is. And please note, in the original Hebrew, the phrase no one means no one. You are not the exception because there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. You cannot grow in affection for another member of the opposite sex without simultaneously decreasing in affection for your spouse. It's not possible. That's what was happening here with Lamech. Verse 20, and Adah bore Jabal, He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, and the word there for livestock literally means possession or property, so Jabal is the first guy in history who decides, I don't really wanna live in community with other people. I don't need anybody else. I'm gonna go off, live on my own, start my own deal, and, and be a producer of cattle. He was the first guy to reject community in favor of chasing the goal of being a wealthy businessman. I don't want to live with other people. I want to live on my own compound and do my own thing and become rich and wealthy. Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. These are the first professional musicians, and this is the first time that music becomes disconnected from God, disconnected from the worship of God. And now music becomes instead used for entertainment and and generating money. And they start singing about things like pickup trucks and, gold chains, and the club, and all that sort of stuff like that. Verse 22, and as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. Literally, what the original language tells us is that Tubal-Cain was the father of cutting implements, the first metal weapons. He was the first to professionally produce arms, that which would be used to dominate people by force. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Then Lemech said to his wives, now my personal speculation is that what Lemech says here, this little limerick, is best imagined being delivered by a very, very drunk Lemech. That's really the only way you can make sense of this. And he says, Adon, Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lemech, listen to my speech. For I've killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lemech 77fold. And so the gist of it is, listen up, ladies. Let me tell you how awesome and hardcore I am. There was this young guy who was hassling me and causing me problems. So I killed him. Because I don't mess around. I'm Lemech. You know how God said he would avenge anyone who messes with Cain sevenfold? Well, if anyone messes with me, I'll avenge them. Seventy times sevenfold. If you're a student of the Bible, then you know that the phrase 70 times seven is just a way of referring to an infinite number. And I think the reason that this weird, I believe, drunken rant by Lamech is in the Bible is just to make the point that the culture that Cain's city produced was one of anger, violence, revenge, unforgiveness, and bitterness that just cycled around and around in an ever-increasing cycle of destruction. And it also seems to be recorded just to contrast how radically different the kingdom of God is. You Bible students will recall that when Jesus was asked by Peter, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So Jesus said, don't even keep count. You just forgive as many times as you need to forgive. And these are the two paths that Genesis 4 is trying to present to us. It's saying this is where the path of Cain leads. Staying in the place of anger that leads to depression, unforgiveness, unrepentance, this is where it leads. This is where it leads. It leads to the city of Enoch, the people of Cain, where men and women become like Lemeh, angry and bitter, holding up two middle fingers at the world, saying, nobody better mess with me. The kingdom of God leads to freedom from bitterness and the ability to love and enjoy relationships with other people in a life-giving way, where you're not bound down by unresolved anger, And deep-seated bitterness. And Genesis 4, the word of God, is speaking to you and I, saying, you choose, you choose which path you want to go down. You decide. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, which means appointed. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh, Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. A change began to take place. So let me ask you this in conclusion. Have you chosen the path of anger and unforgiveness in your life? Or have you chosen the path of repentance and extending forgiveness to others? Letting that bitterness go. If you're a believer, I need to tell you, you don't have a choice. You must forgive. You must you must seek the Lord. One path leads to depression and isolation. The other path leads to freedom and joy and wholeness. If you need to change course, change today. I don't know why you would want to camp out in the place of anger and depression for one second longer than you need to. But it's not fair. They need to pay. Jesus paid, Jesus bled. Jesus was beaten. He died for what they did to you. And the Lord would say to you and I, is that not enough for you? That's not enough. Every day that you and I wake up, we have hope because God was not fair to us. He has not treated us according to our deeds. Instead, he's been gracious, he's been kind, he's been merciful, and he's been good. Jesus laid down his life shed his blood so that we wouldn't get what's fair, so that we wouldn't have to pay for what we've done, so that we wouldn't get what we deserved. And Jesus was very clear when he was on the earth. He said, if you want to receive my forgiveness, you must forgive everyone else. You must, you don't have a choice. And the idea is that they don't deserve your forgiveness just like you don't deserve God's forgiveness. Forgiveness is not about what anyone deserves. If you're a Christian, you've got to understand that by now. We're not forgiven because we deserve it. We're forgiven because that's who God is. God is love. And his blood speaks a better word than what we deserve. So we're commanded to be like Jesus and forgive. But God says if you'll do that, if you release your anger, you'll be lifted up. You'll be lifted up. If you're bitter or angry towards someone, forgive them. Be set free. If there's decisions in your life that you made and seasons where you didn't walk with the Lord or obey the Lord and that led to some very destructive things happening in your life, take ownership of it. Stop being mad at everyone else. Change. Learn from it. Ask God to help you. And God says, you'll be lifted up. Your spirit, your countenance, you'll be changed. You'll be changed. So make sure today that you take communion in this coming time of worship. It's available in the back, and you can get it at any time. And as you take it, would you just thank the Lord today that you have not been treated fairly by him? Thank him for that. Instead, you've been loved, you've been accepted, you've been welcomed, you've been forgiven, and you've been blessed because Jesus shed his innocent blood for you. So take communion and if there's something you need to repent of, repent. If there's something you need to let go of, let go of it. Whatever your situation is, you're not in the place of anger or depression because there's not a remedy. You're there because you haven't received the remedy that's available, which is the healing and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. With that, let's let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus, thank you so much for your word that, that cuts so deep to the core of the biggest issues we face in life. And Lord, we recognize that, that we are born sinners and so we are drawn towards sin. And even when we have the choice between repentance and extending forgiveness or being angry and bitter, Lord, we gravitate towards being angry and bitter. It's the path of least resistance. It's the easiest place for us to go. But Lord, we wanna confess, we know where that leads. That it leads to dwelling in the place of anger and depression and a spiral of destruction that poisons every meaningful relationship in our lives. And we also recognize that you have come to the earth so that we could have life and life abundantly. Life in our relationships, life in our emotional health, life in our mental health. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would stir our hearts and shine a spotlight if there's anything within us that needs to change, if there's a person we need to forgive, if there's something we're mad about that we just need to let go of. Not because the other person deserves to be forgiven, but because. We didn't deserve to be forgiven, and you forgave us. And you ask us to forgive so that we can be free, so that we can be whole and know your joy and be lifted up. And so I ask, Lord, that you would do that today. May your the voice and the voice of your spirit be stronger and louder than the voice of sin, than the voice of anger, than the voice of depression. May people be healed in this room today, Jesus. We know that you can do it. You're not only willing, but you're able, Lord God, to do it. You are strong enough. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing. Go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through His Word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus and we would love you to be a part of it.